Hello, I'm Neil Moody, and welcome to this episode of In Bed with Neil Moody, with me, your host, Neil Moody. My guest on this episode is the marvellous Ariane Phillips, and it forms the first of a two-part episode that are both released today. Ariane is one of the most lauded costume designers and fashion stylists of our generation, who has uniquely managed to cross over her skills from music to fashion to film, working with Lenny Kravitz, Courtney Love and Madonna, shooting for various Vogue magazines and collaborating with both Prada and Gucci, plus being nominated for multiple awards around the world for the films that she's worked on, including no less than three Oscar nominations for her costume designs on the films Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino, Walk the Line, directed by James Mangold, and Madonna's directional debut, W.E. So without further ado, come with me, meet Ariane, and hear her story from the start and how her amazing career unfolds. Hi, Ariane. <laughs> Hi, Neil. I can't believe we're doing this digitally. You're in LA, I'm in London. Fantastic. And I can see you. <laughs> so good to see you. Likewise. So let's get going, because you've got a, an amazing story, your life. Obviously, I want to get as much of it in to the podcast as possible about all the amazing things that you've done. So uh, first off, can you tell us where you were born? You know, where your, where your life began, basically. Sure thing. Um, I was born on Mars. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was born in New York City. Um, yeah. My parents were basically passing through. My mom had gotten pregnant and then got married, kind of went backwards. And my parents, they got married when my mom was, I think, like three or four months pregnant, unbeknownst to her mom. They right. took all their wedding presents, cashed them in, and they were very young. My mom was 20. My dad was 24. And they cashed in all their wedding presents and went to Europe in 1962 and traveled around and um they were they were bohemians they're coming out of the beatnik era and Mm. they ran out of money and on their way home they ended up landing in new york on their way home to california they ended up landing Mm. in new york and my dad got a job and they ended up staying there for almost a year and i was born in that year so Ah, so I thought you were actually born in California. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. You know, there's a story in my family where um, my mom said I was born and they lived in a cold water flat on Cornelia Street in the West Village, which would What's have a its cold own, water flat, a cold water flat. It didn't have any hot water. Um, and oh, okay. a lot of right. those West Village and, and village flats at that time, it was the kind of thing where it was a bathtub with a piece of plywood in the middle of the living room was the the kitchen table. Um, Just, you know, they just, they lived on, you know, very little and they were bohemian Mm. at the time. And, you know, I think it was quite romantic for them. So my mother and father, the myth they say is that um, there is like a gypsy woman who lived on the, the ground floor of the building on Cornelia Street. And if you know Cornelia Street, it's it's literally one block long. Um, yeah, it's tiny. Tiny. And it's so ironic because when I ended up moving to New York in the 80s, I ended up moving around the corner. Unbeknownst to me, my parents had lived on Cornelia Street. Anyway, nice little circle there. But a gypsy woman who was living on the ground floor told my mom, 
the best thing you can do for your child is give her New York birthright. She'll be back. And <laughs> yeah, kind of like a blessing or a curse, who knows? But, and, but funny enough, I'm the only one in my family, my whole greater family, not just my immediate family that ever really moved to New York. I mean, I had one cousin that moved to New York. So in a way, you know, she told my mom, you know, your, your baby will take the energy of New York City and it'll always been, be in her. And in a way, it's kind of spooky. I guess it was kind of true because I did make my way back there. My mom just really, being so young, she had just turned 21 when I was born, uh, really mm. wanted to be near closer to her family. So they moved back to California. Whereabouts in California was it? Well, my mother and my father were both from Southern California, and they um, had met when they were both students at Berkeley, which is Northern California, Cal Berkeley University, and they moved back to the Bay Area. Uh, so I was raised in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, cool. Amazing. I love it around there. It's so nice. I've been there, actually. Yeah, it's very, you know, there's always, I guess, you know, we see it all over. I think you see it in northern and southern England as well. Like, you know, there's this, San Francisco always had this snobbery where it thought it was far more, it was the cultural elite, where LA (laughs) was like the, you know, the... (laughs) insincere, uh, superficial Hollywood of it all. So there's quite an intellectual and bohemian tradition in Northern California that my parents were really seeking as young people. Um, They were moving away from that kind of, in the 60s, that that establishment culture, post-50s. And they, they, they purposely sought out an alternative kind of lifestyle, bohemian, more, um, more intellectual kind of, they were, they were activists and artists. And so they, they were, they were literally seeking that out. Yeah. Cause I remember you telling me you were sort of raised in like an artist community, weren't you? Yeah. Different, very... different artist communities. My parents moved around incredible amount when I was a kid. Mm. I mean, every couple of years I went to so many schools and the truth is, is they were really, they were super young when they had me and they were just experimenting, right? And I think I got an incredible amount of benefits from it, uh, just in terms of like always being the new kid um, in school, which was, you know, semi-traumatic at times, but then, <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, like, but I think in the, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, it really gave me this ability to assimilate and both things. I think it, it, um, I really became a people person because I really had to constantly fit in. And I, I say, you know, as a costume designer, maybe a little bit as a fashion stylist, but more as a costume designer, I always say that being a costume designer is being a people detective because, (laughs) because costumes are really essentially creating character. So like when you watch a film, it's about identity and about character and that eventually moves the story along. And I think because of being a kid who felt pretty self-conscious most of the time, because I was always the new kid, I was constantly observing and figuring out ways, especially in adolescence of how to fit in and how to, you know, not be, not stand out. And I think that that really worked to my benefit. And also my parents were constantly, trying new things. So I think that gave me the impetus that I could kind of create my own path because my parents 
my father especially really was an artist, but his parents who were, you know, came out of the depression, like many parents were trying to um, have my father be practical and be, you know, my father became an English teacher and really didn't enjoy it. He really just yeah. wanted to be a writer and a musician, which is what his passions were and what he did as his hobbies. With my mom, she was never really encouraged to be creative, really through her relationship with my dad did she find her inner writer and she's also a <laughs> painter. And so I think they together, who were rebelling against this kind of traditional upbringing, they encouraged my sister and I to do what spoke to us on a really deep level and to express ourselves and be creative. Yeah, and also also be our own boss. That was my dad would say that all the time, like, be your own boss, be your own boss, don't work for anyone else. And, you know, that really also came out of, I think, that time in the 60s and the 70s of like, you know, they were involved in early civil rights demonstrations and then the Vietnam War demonstrations. They were young people and they were activists. And it was about, you know, going against the man, quote unquote, meaning the, the <laughs> yeah. establishment. They like to make the d distinction that they weren't hippies. They were bohemians because to them, hippies were like, drug-taking dropouts of society. Yeah, I was going to say, hippies were more dropouts, right? Yeah. yeah. And or they, considered more dropout. Yeah, I mean, it's language, so whatever. I always, you know, I always saw hippies as, because as, we certainly knew a lot of them, of, of that freedom, right? And hippies were punk rock in their own way in that they were really cutting the ties of the way they had been raised and, and looking to do things differently. But see, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. <laughs> and so there's just you and your sister. Yes, I have a sister who's five years younger than me. Right. Caitlin. What does she do, incidentally? Caitlin. What does Caitlin do? Caitlin, named after Dylan Thomas's wife. It's a, oh. a literary tradition in my family. Um, my sister has done a few things. She went to art school at CalArts, and then she worked in the film business in the camera department for a while. And and got frustrated by being the only women woman often in the camera department. She did. She worked in great movies like um, Being John Malkovich and stuff like oh, that wow. in the nineties. And then she just decided, screw this. Um, I'm really interested in alternative medicine, and she became a, a naturopath. And she studied like box flower remedies and um, homeopathy and all this stuff, and and became an expert on it. And then she met. My brother-in-law had kids, took some time off, and now she's kind of assimilating back into that world. And she became a real estate agent recently, which is uh, <laughs> my, my great-grandmother was a real estate agent. My mom did it for a time. And anyway, yeah. So she, she has so, two kids and lives in Northern California. Are you close? We are. We're very close. And I'm very close to her kids, my nephews, who are mm. incredible. I adore. Oh. So when would you say you first got interested in clothes and fashion? Because I know that you started doing fashion sketches when you were really young. Yes, didn't you? I <laughs> did. Um, well, I was always obsessed with pop culture, like seriously mm. obsessed. And I think probably because a couple things. Number one, we never had a TV. My parents didn't allow us to have a TV, just like my mom didn't allow me to have a Barbie doll which was, of course, the two things I wanted the most because I couldn't have them. But my parents took my sister and I to every movie they went to. We went to a lot of art house films, to every play, to every concert, to every poetry reading. And what I like to say is that 
my parents, while they kind of tried to consciously expose my sister and I to art and culture and not have, give us access to like commercial culture, like TV and stuff like that. Of course, I became obsessed with pop culture. And oh my God, Neil, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> How did you get How interested? Did I get interested? Like, okay, great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the genius things about my mom is that my mom and my uncle and her and my aunt, they were all very close. There was a time when we lived in Berkeley, California, and my mom was just furnished our whole house from um, flea markets, garage sales, as you would say, car boot sales, and thrift stores. Nothing posh, just literally like, you know, charity, charity shops. And she furnished a whole house, and it was her passion, and she collected all kinds of dress-up costumes. And I had this incredible like old steamer trunk that was filled with, you know, crazy costumes that she would find. Um, and I, <laughs> she would encourage me, my parents would, you know, have these like kind of salon, like poetry readings and music happenings at our house. She would encourage me and my sister, my dad too, and other kids to dress up and perform for the adults. And I think the truth is they'd be drinking a lot of red wine, smoking <laughs> smoking a bit of pot, and then the kids would entertain, right? Right. So, um, <laughs> and it was, it was, and they'd play like Ravi Shankar music, or my dad is a jazz musician, his friends would be jamming. So I was, there's a lot of play and imagination in my childhood, and I think that combined with all the exposure to film and a lot of foreign film. I mean, I went to a lot of art house films as a little kid that I would just sleep halfway through because I couldn't even read the subtitles. So all those <laughs> Fellini movies and Truffaut movies that kind of, I assimilated. Also my obsession with pop stars and, and teen magazines that I would save my lunch money or whatever mm. I got from babysitting and go buy teen magazines. And I was obsessed with pop music. So started. Me too. The Jackson, the same. Yeah. Like the Jackson five to the Bay city rollers to, you know, any like, um, 45 rec, you know, the top 40. Yeah. I was really, really obsessed. <gasps> with that. Do you know, I used to, I used to have a little book. And I would write down the top 40 every week in Aww. the book to keep the record. Yeah, I was so obsessed with it. Aww. Like, I literally would, like, listen to the radio every Sunday when they would announce it. And, and the BBC? I'd list, like, the top, yeah, and I'd list the top 20. And then I'd look back and go, oh, that moved five places. Oh. I was exactly the same. Oh, yeah. that's, I wasn't quite as organized as you. Did you graduate <laughs> to listen to John Peel when you were a young person? Yeah. Yeah. Because I found out about John Peel as a teenager and became mm. obsessed. You know, I didn't have access to, to John Peel, but mm. you know, I'm skipping forward in, to my teenage years. Um, that obsession with music that started as, as a kid with, you know, with vinyl records and, and also pop music. Cause my dad didn't, my dad is a jazz musician and a, complete snob about the kind of music that was in our house. I think the only pop records, we had a couple Beatles records, 
maybe one Rolling Stones record, and the rest were like Coltrane, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, lots and lots, and you know, Pharaoh Sanders and Ravi Shankar, you know, it was either like some obscure, you know, so that was the music that was played in our house, our classical music, and I was... I was like craving, you know, <laughs> Carol King, the Bay City Rollers, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And that just mm. graduated for me to like Led Zeppelin, all the British brands, Bread, uh, Bad Company, mm. Rod Stewart. And then, well, I'm catapulting forward, but then when I was 15, I was in, uh, living in a town in uh, Northern California, Santa Cruz, where actually my parents still mm. live now. And there was this really cool record shop there. It's a, it's a college town. So they had this real indie, cool record shop. And all the kids that worked there were university students who were really cooler than cool. This is like 77, 78. And one particular really cool girl, she kind of had a Nico look. She had long bleach blonde hair and long bangs. I mean, no one looked like this. You couldn't even see her eyes. She was in, played a bass in a band. I was obsessed with her. And she used to give me like Blitz magazine and enemy. And by the time we got them, they were like four months old, five Mm. months old. Um, because they, you know, they kind of dribbled in from, from the UK. And then that started my obsession with, British, I became like a serious Anglophile between like the amalgamation of pop music and fashion and street culture was so unique to London. It's funny because Blitz magazine was so amazing. And actually, I feel like now it doesn't get talked about as much as like the face and ID. But actually... As a magazine, it was amazing. I've still got some copies of Blitz I did in too. my storage. I did too. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember Flexi Pop? Oh yes, when it was like um, like a Flexi sing forty five yeah, single. Yeah, it'd be yes. like a Depeche Mode single or a Smith single yeah. or something, and you would get this clear pink. Yeah. Yeah, they'd be in bright colours, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah. Was it Flexi Pop? Yeah. I think was a magazine, though, right? And you could get a single. I I feel like it was, but maybe you get a single with it. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We used that. We also had a magazine. I don't know if you got it in America called Smash Hits. Of course. Yeah. Which was all about music. Yeah. Um, Cream magazine. um, Yeah, yeah. That's what I was obsessed with, and would actually like literally scour it from front to back. I was more interested in that than fashion, actually. Back in the day. Interesting. Maybe you missed your calling as like, you know, a producer (laughs) or a pop star. Now, Smash Hits, they used to list the the charts in there. I think it was quite a big deal. I feel like there's a lot of like listings and stuff. And the lyrics. You get all the lyrics to all the top songs. So you could then learn. Yeah, but you know what, Aaron? I was secretly a pop singer that never happened. (laughs) Are you kidding? Yeah, I've, I've talked about this in another podcast with somebody. I made a demo tape and my friend and I sent it to the top, the guy who presented Top 40 um, <laughs> on BBC Radio 1 when we were like 14. That's incredible. In that, Do you still have it? <laughs> somewhere in a vault. Oh, you, uh, oh no, we got to find that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And then I did record some songs when I was in my early 20s as well. My goodness. Yeah, I, do you remember... Um, 
culture club you know uh, culture club, do obviously. i remember they like i know sorry i don't know why the I said, biggest influence for me early on yes of course yeah. so do you remember helen terry the of female course. vocalist of course. so she is a friend of mine and her and her girlfriend helped me record a demo tape um, did she send yeah. backup on your demo no i oh, didn't <laughs> I always thought Helen Terry and Alison Moyer were like similar to me because they had these yeah. incredible husky, soulful voices, that white soul. Yeah, Helen yeah. Terry is amazing. People always get them mixed up, actually. Yeah. Well, they used to, probably not so much now. So there's a demo tape hidden away somewhere I in the vault, it. too. I love it. I love that. Next time you come to London, I might play it to you. It's I would funny. love it. <laughs> Amazing. You were right. I definitely had a secret passion to do that, but it never happened. So um, never mind. Anyway, I understand. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I I wanted to be an actress. I was sure that I'd be an actress. I had no idea I would go into costumes. I only realized as a teenager. By the time that I really started thinking seriously about pursuing it, I took a, <laughs> I took a, a a summer workshop as a seventeen year old at a very prestigious acting conservatory in San Francisco. Funny enough, Nicolas Cage was in my group at the time before he was famous. And I realized I was a shit actress and that I better, if I wanted to have anything to do with theater at the time, it was really about theater, theater or film or anything then I better hustle to figure out what else I could do. And I, and costumes were kind of like already kind of in the ethos of my interests just mm. in terms of dressing up and telling telling stories through costumes anyway i digress but you also didn't you you were thinking of doing hair and makeup weren't you at one point well the truth is i went to beauty school so when i right. was in high school so we lived in sonoma county for a time because we moved around quite a lot and my best friend's mother well, my very best friend in ninth grade, her mother, they, it was the most incredible family. Her mother was a hairstylist. She lived in a communal household. So it was my friend Tracy, her mother, her mother's boyfriend, Richard, who was a set designer. Um, and he designed for the Globe Theater in San Diego, which was akin to the, uh, the Globe Theater in London was connected to it. So he was a, a theatrical set designer, which also really informed me just in terms of theater because I was really interested in theater. But her mom was a hairdresser. So follow me. This is just such a funny story. So my friend, she <laughs> lived with her mother, the hairdresser, her mother's boyfriend, who was a set designer. And then her mother's boyfriend's lover, who was a man, who was a hairdresser, who owned a salon with Tracy's mother. So okay. and then his and then his boyfriend. So it was this this household of super creative adults and also very it was all about like this was the seventies, it was all about freedom, sexual freedom mm. and um and that house was incredible for me. I spent a lot of time there. I that wasn't was, even a love triangle, was it? That was like a love hexagon or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and everybody lived in, at least from my perspective at this point, every, every it was a very harmonious household. And there were a lot of rules. Like it wasn't just like as kids, we had certain rules that we had to do. And I spent loads of time there because the, it was in, um, uh, my school was 25 miles one way 
to school. So if I wanted any after school activities, I needed to stay at someone's house who lived near school. And I was in theater and I was in all kinds of different after school activities. So I spent an incredible amount of time at that house. I was actually thinking about him last night because I went to a surprise birthday party and the one surprise birthday party that was thrown for me was by that family when I was 16. They had a huge influence on me on so many different levels. So Marie, uh, Tracy's mom, had a salon. We spent a lot of time at the salon. And at that time in the 70s, it was like, do you remember like those hair shows when they did like those woven, crazy (laughs) hair? Yeah, it was such an experimental time for hair. It was when crazy color came on the scene and everyone was cutting their hair kind of post-Sassoon precision Mm. cuts. And there was a lot of creativity going on. Um, mm-hmm. Some, I mean, just outrageous stuff. And so I always being really kind of practical minded as well. I knew that if I wanted to go at that time, I thought I was going to go to acting school, that I needed to figure out a way to pay for it because my parents lived a very modest lifestyle and didn't have the kind of money that could finance that kind of education. So I thought, well, I'll go to beauty school, I'll get my license, and I'll work in a salon as an assistant and maybe cut Mm -hmm. hair on the side. And then my parents um, moved to Santa Cruz the next year in my 11th, uh, the beginning of my 11th grade year, which was traumatic (laughs) because that that was about (laughs) three hours away, totally different culture. So went for this Mm -hmm. kind of like rural country hippie culture to this beach surf skate Santa Cruz lifestyle. So I actually um, had transferred with a lot of school credits. So I one of the options is that you could take a technical class. I told my parents I wanted to go to beauty school because I could do that for the last two periods. Uh, so you have six periods during the day, six different classes you can take. So, and two of them would be elective because I had all these extra credits. I could go take a technical skill. And the beauty school was just down the hill from the high school in Santa Cruz. And I didn't really know, I didn't know anybody when we moved there. And I thought it would be a perfect thing. Well, my parents said, absolutely no. There's no way. I remember my father saying, ah, there's no daughter of mine is going to go to beauty school. To him, that was like, that you know he had these intellectual aspirations for me they were supportive about and I explained to them why I wanted to go but I went anyway I didn't tell them I didn't have to get permission and I loved it I loved it it was so much fun you know you have to fulfill a certain amount of hours in America at beauty school before you can take the state board exam to be uh, licensed so because I wasn't full-time, it took me twice as long. So it took me almost two years. I got found out about six months into it by one of my mom's friends who came in and um, I was assigned to wash her hair. And I'm like, oh, shit, now it's now I'm busted. Um, <laughs> but yeah, busted. exactly. Uh, I loved it. It was really great. I think what I loved about cutting hair, there was immediate results. You could be creative with immediate results. And being yeah. a very impatient child, <laughs> that appealed to me. And also you could, you could transform someone by their hair and not only mm. physically, but how they felt. And I felt like I loved to be able to positively 
impact someone but i have to tell you it took a long time before anything positive happened i was a shit hairstylist but, uh, but yeah you've seen some of the disasters i create <laughs> i'll never forget my mom asking my mom to come with me as my model for the state board test and I got kicked out of the test halfway through because I started laughing so hard in that dead <laughs> silent room because I had to do all these ridiculous things on her. And they don't like I had to show the instructor that I could straighten her hair as if she had like frizzy, like African-American mm. hair or I had and they give you like shaving cream to, <laughs> instead of, you know, so that you mock. You're mocked it, and I'll just never forget having to wash and set my mom's hair and not getting that fucking shaving cream out of her head. And my mom, who was this very, like, you know, she didn't wear a bra, she had natural hair. She was like a, you know, she wasn't a hippie, but she was like very, you know, beautiful. And then I was like washing and set. Oh my God, I lost it. Anyway, none of that's so important, but, <laughs> but I got my license. You got your license. I got my that's license. And I did. I went and worked as an assistant at a couple of different hair salons in San Francisco. And I was going to college at the same time to university. I quickly realized that it was a great way that I could generate and support myself. Anyway, that's like a tangent that, but yes, it's true. We'll probably just move on. It's, like, it's a good way to make money quickly, right? It was, and it did really lead me. It was kind of the gateway to styling. Like I did really learn about, because I was, I thought, more interested in being a hairstylist than like a hair cutter. Like I really loved photo shoots and creating um, something for a camera, print work. So it was a, a gateway for me of allowing me to look into a whole other world that I um mm. that was connected to my interest in fashion. Yeah. I mean the truth is is that I had kind of reached a dead end. Um I had been living in San Francisco. I got in a I was a passenger in a car accident. I got a chunk of money from the insurance uh settlement from the accident. I bought a URL pass when they used to exist. And I went to, um, well, first stop was London, um, 1983. And I was about 19 years old. And I went for a summer traveling around Europe. Important, I think, for me at that age to to get out into the world and see what was out there. And, and I had just such an incredible summer. I was in Europe for about three months. and On your own? Uh, I had a friend that I traveled with half of the time and I met loads of people on that trip. So many <laughs> funny stories. And and I knew someone that lived in London who uh, we stayed with initially in Deptford of all places. I thought it's Gosh. funny. When I arrived, I thought we were in the center of London. I didn't know any <laughs> different. At that time, the tube only went to like Waterloo and then you had to take a bus to Deptford and I was like, which my friend was living in. Oh my God, that's such a story, Neil. That's an incredible story, but that's a long story. But I, my whole like landing in London, like here I am and I'm in Deptford. <laughs> yeah, that trip, that, that accident, and then the money that came from that accident afforded me, I think, 
the ability to see what was out there, which was super, super exciting. You know, at that point, mm. you know, I didn't really, I'd never traveled. I'd never been to Europe before. Um, mm. It just all wasn't accessible to me. I didn't have the money and uh, anything. So, so going and having that adventure really inspired me. And then I moved home and I decided I wanted to go to St. Martin's. I found out about St. Martin's. And I thought, that's great. Mm. I'll go to St. Martin's. But as a foreign student, I couldn't afford it. Right. And then plus living in London, it was really, really cost prohibitive. So I thought, okay, <laughs> next best thing, I'll move to New York and mm. I'll continue my, um, cause it, it interrupted my college, my university schooling. So I thought, oh, I'll move to New York and I will, I don't know, do hair and makeup, look, figure out what it means to be a stylist. Cause I read in 85, you moved to New York and you were toying with hair and makeup and being a fashion stylist and it was Arthur Elgore the photographer that told you you should become a stylist is that right kind of I moved to New York in 1985 my great-grandmother who's kind of like an angel bought my plane ticket and I arrived there not knowing anyone and just being like gobsmacked like how (laughs) so crazy like how do I do this Actually, one of my mom's friends, my mom came with me to move me there. And she had a friend who was in town at the same time. And we had lunch with her. And she she was curious, you know, what do you want to do? What is, why are you in New York? And I said, oh, well, I want to work in fashion. Um, And I do a little bit of, I had created like this home portfolio in Santa Cruz when I was convalescing during that time, my very best friend had gone to London himself and lived for six months. And he had worked at, um, as a shop boy, basically he worked mm-hmm. at like, do you remember D mob? Yeah. So mm-hmm. he worked there. He worked at fear Ridge, wow. and he would call me collect from London and tell me what was out and what was in. And he was like, <laughs> and like, uh, and he's the one who really opened my world up about, fashion styling because I didn't even know what yeah. that was. So Anise, my mom's friend, suggested that I, you know, go to talk to Arthur Elgort. Maybe he could give me some advice. He was a working fashion photographer. I didn't know who he was. So I looked his name up in the phone book. I called up the studio and I took exactly her advice. I said, um, I'm a friend of Jennifer Tree. I think that was her last <laughs> name. And uh, she told me that I just moved from California because Jennifer's living in California. And um, she said to give Arthur a call. And so they called me back a couple of days later and said, Arthur would love to meet you. Come on in. We have a, you know, come. He, he's going to have a lunch break, blah, 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 blah. So I put on kind of my best um, thrift store, like chic, and um, which wasn't chic. Um, but, um, and I felt you know, like it at the time, right? Yeah. I just like pulled a look together. And yeah. um and to this day I still think I went over to the studio I still think it's the most glamorous studio I, I've ever been in it was massive it was on Grand Street right by Little Italy do you ever go to yeah. that studio I've shot there yeah with him yeah mm, well then you amazing, know though. I had no idea what I was walking into I had no idea who he was this is 1985 it was probably about three weeks after I moved to New York it was like in November I never forget. <laughs> I had these, these, these wedges, these wedges, these kind of seventies. I had this kind of seventies club look I had pulled together. The ankle strap broke 
And so I had tied it together with a, a shoelace from my trainers. And lo and behold, I get to that damn building and the elevator was out. And I had to walk up the stairs and I'll never forget it because it took me like twice as long. I remember by the time I got up there, I was like, <sighs> and I had like a blister on my ankle because my heels, it was so funny. So I was a bit, I was a bit out of my comfort zone. So I arrive up there to this day. I'll never forget that studio. I remember his assistant. They were gorgeous. They were these beautiful boys with long hair. And it was at that time that remember that model Attila? Yeah. All the boys started growing their hair long and they looked like these young Adonises and it was super busy and a lot was going on. And I swear to God, Polina Partskova was there and she right. was the model at the time. It was, it was like the first celebrity I'd ever seen. Like, and she wasn't. You must have been just, like mouth in a circle, just like. Uh. I, well, I immediately started like sweating, like full body sweat. Like I am going to be in so much trouble. Like. I am here under the pretense of a, of a lie, basically. So I was just like, okay, I'm just going to act my way through this, right? So I'm, I'm in too far. So Arthur, I was shown into his office. It was a lunch break. I had this portfolio I had cobbled together with my friends in Santa Cruz, you know, my friends from different bands, my sister, her friends from high school, and had dressed them up, looking at magazines like The Face and Blitz and doing our version, very edgy, kind of English, street fashion. You know, that was what my portfolio looked like. So funny. I actually still have some pictures. I went in to that meeting. He was so lovely and so nice. And He's the loveliest guy, isn't he, Arthur? Oh, so nice. He was so kind. And he kind of gave me advice that I, funny enough, I, I feel like I give that advice now to younger people who, who seek it, you know, ask how to get into the industry. And he said, you know, he looked at my portfolio, was so kind and so generous. Like, and he was, I think he did his best to find positives. And I explained <laughs> to him that I did hair and makeup and styling. And he said in the nicest way, you know, it's probably best you focus on one of those things. Which was news to me. I thought I could do it like, all. No, I want to do it all. <laughs> and he said, you know, I can't really help you. But what you should do is come up with your generation and work and test with. And he went around and introduced me to his assistants, one of which was Philip Dixon, who would go on to be a very successful photographer. And he said, you know, just really focus on your generation and come up with, you know, find out who your community is, do shoots together, constantly do stuff. And he said, you know, you should really go work if you want to be a stylist. Cause I said, Oh yeah, I'm much more interested in the fashion side of things. He said, then you should really go work at Condé Nast, get a job at Condé Nast. So I took that to heart and um, fortunately didn't ask me too many questions about Jennifer, who I didn't know. Um, and he was very kind and he said, you know, please stay in touch uh, so I, I have an uncle who's about 10 years older than me and he's very, uh, he was like an art photographer in San Francisco and I called him up, um, which was a, a commitment because I didn't have any money and even making a long distance phone call was a commitment in those days. Remember? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I should too. <laughs> so my, uh, I said to my uncle, I, you know, I told him I met with this photographer 
And his name's Arthur Elgort. And my uncle just started laughing because he knew who he was. And he's like, wow. And he said, yeah, he said, I should go work for Condé Nast. Who is he? Who is Condé Nast? I thought he was a person. <laughs> and my uncle explained to me, it's a, you know, it's a publishing company. And he explained to me. So I, <laughs> I went out the next day and I bought every Condé Nast magazine I could. And I think it was like right. Vogue and Mademoiselle. And, you know, I just opened the mastheads. I skipped over like the fashion editors, went straight to the fashion director and editor in chief and just started cold calling. And that wasn't doing me any good. So I called back and I said, Arthur Elgort told me to call. I just totally blagged my way through it. And lucky for me, um, this incredibly gracious, kind woman who is a creative director at Vogue, Jade Hobson, who's now Jade Hobson Charnin. Um, her office called me back and said, you know, Jade would love to meet with you. Of course, this is on the premise of saying that Arthur told me to call. <laughs> I just figured, what the hell? I was having such a hard time in New York. I was a month in. I was like looking at my watch. I'm like out of here in six months if nothing happens. Yeah. And I, I yeah. just was like, I'm going to, as my grandma say, use my chutzpah, which is just like, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take this as far as I can. And I didn't really care. I was like, you know, I'll go home. I'll be, you know, this is too hard, too hard. New York was not such a friendly place in those days. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty, and it was such a small circle of people to infiltrate. So I went and had a meeting with uh, Jade Hobson I'll never forget being offered a cappuccino. I thought that was the fanciest thing ever. And God, yeah, back then, it was a bit, I'd be a bit like, a what? <laughs> I know, exactly. I think I only knew that was because my dad used to drink cappuccinos at this really, like, bohemian cafe in San Francisco mm. in uh, <laughs> North Beach. But um, uh, it, when I was in there, Jade uh, introduced me. She was having a heated discussion with Polly Mellon. Who, of oh, course, God, and they, Polly was the editor in chief of Vogue, and they were, I'll never forget it, they were having a heated discussion about a cover that Kim Alexis was on. And I knew who Kim Alexis was. I didn't know who Polly was. I obviously didn't know who Jade was. But I realized that these people, like, I was in, you know, I was definitely on like fashion hallowed ground. And, and I just was like, okay, I'm going to be going to jail any minute when they figure out who I am. And as I'm sitting there and I'm like looking at everything in her office, all these framed pictures, I saw a framed photo that said, you know, with love from Arthur. And I was like, holy crap, he's a big deal, which is, you know, I was just kind of piecing it together. And anyway, Jade was amazing. She looked at the same pathetic portfolio and she said, you know, I have something good to say and something not so good to say. And I was like, uh, no kidding. She's going to kick me out. And she said, you know, you're not right for Vogue. And I immediately like was like, you know, my heart sank. She says, but you're perfect for Mademoiselle. And okay. she said, and at that time, Mademoiselle was way cooler than Vogue to me because Mademoiselle was kind of trendier and younger. Vogue was much more kind of, not matronly, but it was more sophisticated. And it definitely wasn't the fashion I was interested in at the time. It, it, was, it was definitely, this is 1985. It was definitely older. 
Um, yeah. And I, I thought, and Mademoiselle was, was trendier. It was actually younger, quite, right? Yeah, younger. Just younger. Yeah. Younger. So she called up the woman, uh, who's an uh, incredible woman who's legendary. I, I know now, Sarah Slavin, who was the head of human resources. And she sent me down there. Uh, she, you know, she picked up the phone and she said, I'm sending down a friend of Arthur's who's just moved here from California. Yeah, as it continued. Um, <laughs> And I went down there, I filled out an application and she said, you know, I don't have anything right now, but call me every Friday. We'll find you something. Oh, Jade had said, you know, she's perfect for Mademoiselle. She should assist one of the editors, blah, 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 blah. So um, I filled out that application and um, less than a week later, I got a phone call from someone that Sarah had passed my name on to who was um, putting together a, a fashion television show called Fashion America on a new cable network called Lifetime, which I had never heard of at that time. Mm -hmm. And I went in for an interview. They were looking for a production assistant. And I was thrilled because it was a mixture of film. You know, it was TV, but it was film and fashion. Mm -hmm. And nothing of its kind had existed except for maybe Elsa Clench on CNN. Right. Just in terms of a fashion show, like a, mm -hmm. a, a television show. So I worked as a production assistant on that show and I did everything from cataloging these big, huge beta tapes of looking at like all the fashion shows, which nobody had access to fashion shows in those, in those days, unless you mm -hmm. were there or from, or looking in a magazine. So my job was looking at all these big tapes. They were like, VHS or beta tapes, can't remember, and making notes like, you know, Jacqueline D. Reeves had polka dots. It was all very like, you know, fancy lady fashion, you know? Yeah, yeah. But that was my education. So I was just wow. sitting there looking at tapes and making notes. And then I would do things like I would drive guests around and they, there was a host and she would interview everyone from, you know, Isaac Mizrahi to Manola Blahnik. And they would, mm. it would be an in-person and then they'd show clips from the fashion shows. And it was really, really an innovative and cool show. And the woman who wow. created it was a woman named Sandy Pittman, who at the mm -hmm. time, her husband, Bob Pittman, had created and was the president of MTV. And that was my goal. That was mm. where I wanted to be. The amalgamation of music and fashion together yeah. and n telling stories. Cause you know, like, and, and that was really the motivation. I think that's a place where it, it, I felt that I could be myself and, mm. and just going up to those Condé Nast offices and seeing, seeing the vibe up there. I knew that really wasn't for me. I didn't, mm. I didn't really feel like I would have fit in there because I didn't go to Brown. I didn't go to Sarah Lawrence. I wasn't like, I came from a, a much more kind of untraditional background and I just mm. didn't really, that wasn't overly appealing. So that really was the start. And then the stylist on that show was a man named Robert Turner, who had been the creative director at Vogue before Jade Hobson. And that show only lasted about six months. And during that time, I was also working because um, I didn't really get paid to do that. But right. um, so I was living on like I had a job at a restaurant. I was also working as a dresser at uh, midnight fashion shows at the Palladium and area. 
So I was, <laughs> so I was working, you know, um, like, like body map came over and did a midnight fashion show, Stephen Jones. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I met like all these incredibly creative, amazing, like kind of my tribe, David LaChapelle and Josh mm-hmm. Jordan. And, and that kind of London, New York connection at that time in the mid eighties was, was really strong between like mm-hmm. kind of performance in the clubs and fashion and everything. So that was kind of, I wasn't sleeping much, but that was kind <laughs> of what my, um, my early days were like and then when that tv show came to an end uh robert turner was kind enough to give me a list of all the big stylists at the time so it was like paul cravaco tina bossity tawny goodman wendy goodman her sister who was actually a stylist before she went into interiors and i just uh from there um started assisting a stylist named barbara dente who had been an editor at GQ. And that's really kind of how I got my start. And then as the stars would align, um, my boyfriend at the time, who lived in California, his sister came to visit and she had gone to high school with Lenny Kravitz and he was in New York. And we met through my boyfriend's sister and became fast friends and um, Lenny at that time. This was before he was um, famous, wasn't it? Before he's had his first album and everything. Yeah, this was early yeah. days. So he, at the time, he was playing drums for Tina Marie and New Edition, and he was traveling. And we just became like best friends. And he would come and stay mm. at my house when he was in town. Our whole thing was like, he was like, you know, when I do my own record, you'll be my stylist. And it was kind of like <laughs> kids dreaming, you know? Yeah, and uh, I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And then, of course, um, lo and behold, you know, my friend uh, Lenny would record this album that blew me away. I remember hearing the music, going to the studio for the first time, and being gobsmacked on just mm-hmm. how talented he was. Because I, how would I, you know, I, I had no idea what his musical abilities were. Um, so that was really, you know. It was, really the beginning for me in New York. God, you must have been having a blast, though. I was. You must have been literally just, like, working on that show, doing the midnight shows and all that kind of stuff. It's literally, like, a dream, isn't it, almost? But, which is kind of amazing. And the fact that you just sort of, you went on, like, your own little journey to get there kind of thing. It was exciting. It was so much fun. And I worked really, really hard. It took me a long time before I could pay my rent in a in a mm-hmm. way that wasn't totally stressful. You know, I definitely wasn't working on high-paying commercial jobs. I definitely had to cobble together. I was still actually cutting hair in my apartment in New York from people as I met that would supplement. So thank God I had that skill. Exactly. You can always rely on doing a haircut to make money. Exactly. So... It paid off, I guess. It helped me move forward. So working with Lenny, was would you say that was like your first... Did you get paid well to do that? Because obviously that was his first album, wasn't it? And early videos. Was there a lot of money from no. the um, record company? No. no, I think the record company was suspicious because they Lenny was insisting on his friend as his stylist. And mm. I wasn't uh, known... I was young and, um, you know, simultaneously I had started 
working in very small music videos. So by the time Lenny came to like his first music video, his first photo shoot, I had had some experience already. I had been working in the music business here and there. I met some publicists who started hiring me like Peter Gabriel or Brian Ferry would come to town and I would steam their clothes and give them powder at like Good Morning America and I'd travel around with it. So I was doing little bits and bobs. I quickly realized my goal was to work on music videos because of MTV. It had only been around for a few years. And that's why I, I loved MTV when it started. I, wasn't that <gasps> so like brilliant. the perfect mashup of like fashion, mm. pop culture and music? So for me, with Lenny, the the record company, I think I was more of a nuisance to them than anything because Lenny insisted on me. Mm-hmm. And in those early days, we didn't have any money to dress Lenny. So the look came out of this repurposing kind of out of the, that 70s thing that came out of the club that ended up informing kind of Lenny's early style, which was that kind of like Yoji meets thrift store, you know, psychedelic <laughs> yeah. style. Yeah. And I only say Yoji because his girlfriend at the time, Lisa Bonet, was a, like the hottest thing. She was the cover of the hot issue on Rolling Stone and she, from the Cosby mm-hmm. show. She had her own show, A Different World. And Lisa had real fashion. She wore Matsuda. Mm-hmm. She wore Yoji Yamamoto. And Lenny and I were obsessed with fashion. Lenny was as obsessed with fashion as I was. We used to. That's we, interesting. We lived in Soho. Lenny lived with me for a time, and we used to go on the weekend. Is when all the galleries were in Soho. It was like all the galleries in Combe de Garçon, and we used to go to the galleries. And then every weekend we would, or multiple times a week, we'd go and hang out in the Combe de Garçon store, and we would just dream and look and dream. And so that really. And that was just unattainable uh, in terms of like, there's no way we ever had the money to have that fashion. So we figured out ways kind of to cobble together that, that kind of look. And then, and through that made our own look. Well, the record company thought that I was ruining his career or any chances of success in the early days. And they actually tried to block me quite a few times um, no way. Yeah, and Lenny really stuck up for me. It was funny because Lenny and Lisa got married, and then she quickly got pregnant with Zoe. So I used to accompany Lenny. Like one time we went to the American Music. We flew to L.A. together and went to the American Music Awards, and I was dressing him, and I was. we were also friends, so we were hanging out at the same time. Mm. Lenny um, at that time was not a very good flyer, so he always had a friend who would fly with him. <laughs> Mm. He's a nervous flyer. And so that afforded me to do a lot of traveling with him. And uh, Lisa was pregnant at the time. And I remember the head of that record company telling Lenny he was making a mistake, you know, and that, you know, uh, I was dressing him like a woman and people wouldn't understand. Of course, we were looking at like David Bowie and Michael Jackson, Mm. Michael Jackson's cartoon, the Jackson 5 cartoon and that silhouette. And we were really kind of referencing all our influences, both Lenny's musically and stylistically, everything from Jimi Hendrix to Jackson five cartoon to um, David Bowie, you know, and it was really about this ambiguity with Lenny Mm. and and the sexuality, you know, Lenny, I I have to give him a lot of credit. He really stuck by me and 
um, when we came up together. And that afforded me a lot of notoriety very early on. I was also mm. doing other things still, the fashion shows. I was working on other music videos, but nothing that got as much attention as Lenny did, especially in those first days. We were having so much fun. It was so organic you know it was just the conversations and it was through those music videos that inspired me to want to work in film because there's two kinds of music videos there's the well first there's a performance video where someone's looking hot and sexy and singing the song right so we know those videos and then there's a narrative video where you're actually telling the story of the song and I found myself, I think it was like the song Mr. Cab Driver off the first album, where I had to dress an actor to look like a cab driver. And all of a sudden, it changed the way I was approaching how I was dressing someone. It wasn't just dressing someone mm. like in fashion to look You weren't just beautiful. giving them a look. Were you? You're like, well, it wasn't just to make to them beautiful. Yeah, I was trying to, mm. like, what does a cab driver look like? Like, and how do I tell that story? Especially music mm. videos. He had no dialogue, right? Because it's just the song. How do I tell that story through what he's wearing? And that mm. really ignited something in me, just in terms of like that storytelling aspect and how, how clothing and identity um, is such a strong part of that. So shortly around that time, some friends of mine from college in California who had moved to New York were making a very, very, very downtown independent little film. And they asked me to do the costumes. And um, that was around like 1989, 1990. So I, I did work on this very small little movie, kind of tried to teach myself how mm. how to costume it and um and that's what really it was like the catalyst really yeah it was i'm the most engaged in my work when i'm doing something challenging and something new so when like arthur elgort told me that i needed to choose between hair and makeup and styling i got a lot of that from the fashion world that i needed to be specific and mm. specialize in a certain area that never really sat well with me. So people would say to me, you need to either be at work in, in music videos or because I was still doing fashion editorial with models. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that I love print photography and I love being tableau form and, and being able to be part of that. And I also love fashion. And this is an opportunity to to work with the the newest and the brightest collections of that time. So people told me, you know, from my agents to my friends, to photographers I met, to directors, like, you need to choose between fashion or music. And then, of course, I added film. And <laughs> and I never felt that I had to choose. Why right. should I choose? when? Because when I, like, work on a bunch of album cover like an album cover in a music video with an artist the approach is so specific because you're collaborating with the artist on telling their story what is organic or authentic to them or the the Mm. or the character that you're trying to put across with the song when you're working in fashion with models you're really conceptualizing the idea around the collection with the photographer with the casting so you're kind of in the driver's seat in a different way and you don't have 
that same, you know, and I also love working with an artist and the challenge of like figuring out who that artist is, what the music's about, what they want to convey. And that's its own skill. And then with film, the costumes create character and help moving the story along. So they all have very different functions and different mm-hmm. approaches and different processes. But I like the mix because I, I guess like you could say that intention deficit disorder, because I'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, okay, I've been, you know, working on this like fashion advertising or editorial or catalog or whatever it was or a fashion show. Now I need to go be inspired by a musician. I need to go like something that, you know, when you're working with a, an artist, like a musician, as you know, there's so much inspiration from the music. And there's like this emotional quality that isn't always there with fashion. You know, and sometimes with fashion, it's often, it can be with editorial, but it's often commerce-based and marketing. Once I started working on films in the early 90s, and it was like, oh, I want to work in something totally immersive where you can collaborate with people for a long time. Because films are usually, on average, it's like a six-month commitment. And you really live it and breathe it. You really don't do anything else at the same time. In the early 90s, I realized that I I knew that I was in the driver's seat with my career, but there's so much noise about modeling my career after other people's career. And there's no one who had a career that I wanted to model myself off. I mean, maybe a little bit this person, a little bit that person. So I decided I had an opportunity to work on a film in L.A., And I had never wanted to live in L.A. I always thought it was kind of a cultural wasteland. I think I was poisoned by being raised in Northern California. But I decided when I was in L.A., I saw that things were changing a little bit when I was working on this movie. And I decided I'm going to move to L.A. to figure out who I am creatively. Because I didn't feel like I I felt so um, influenced by what other people were doing, what my friends were doing, and distracted in New York. So I decided to go to L.A. to kind of figure out what kind of career I wanted to have because I saw people burning out. I saw people I'd started with who maybe working in fashion, who maybe went down a path of, you know, like sabotage with whether it was drugs and alcohol or they went down a career where, where they were going for the money jobs and they became a bit redundant and not relevant. So that scared me, and I knew I wanted to do film. So I decided to move to L.A. I met a guy, which kind of helped me, catapult me, and I worked on a film. Yeah, exactly. Something to wake up for. Um, (laughs) And that really helped me. Like, all my friends were shocked. They're like, you're you're just basically, like, that's career suicide. There's nothing happening Because that's it. With the whole thing with Lenny, I guess, obviously, first, the record label ate their words, right? Because they must have been a bit like, oops, we got that one wrong. Because, obviously, you created amazing things with Lenny. Well, ended um, up, his visuals ended up becoming a very a, a, a very successful part of his identity. It, yeah, it actually, yeah. it, it, we actually had to pull it back a bit because people overstated his visuals and and oftentimes the reviewers didn't pay attention to the music. So, but yes, right. it it it, mm. it it was a success. And also working with Lenny, I got to work with so many talented other artists like Mondino, who was an icon for me, Jean Baptiste Mondino, who, who mm. was someone I admired so much. 
and many, many different photographers and, and stuff. So you moved to LA in 92. Was that before you'd met Courtney and Madonna? Because I know that obviously they became a big part of your career as well, didn't they? So Yeah, yeah. No, it was definitely before. Um, I met Courtney Love. I mean, I certainly knew who she was uh, before Hole and before she was married to Kurt and everything because she's from San Francisco. And we were in a right. similar kind of punk rock music scene in San Francisco. And she was infamous. Um, and we have mutual friends. So I knew who she was. You know, I did a couple films, uh, The Crow and Tank Girl. Um, the Crow, oh, by the way, I didn't know you did that, Ari, until mm. I was looking the other day. Mm. And I was a bit like, oh, my God, the costumes in that were so incredible. That was amazing that visually. Was, yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, you know, it's hard to take, have any pride or take any credit for that film just because it it ended in such tragedy and the whole mm -hmm. reason why I did that film is because um Brandon Lee uh got me that job we had been friends right. beforehand so it's kind of like mm -hmm. a I mean funny enough because of that tragedy and because of what happened Brandon mm -hmm. dying on that movie I mean I probably should have just ended my film career right then and there but I had already committed to doing another film um, which just kept me moving forward. So I guess that was ultimately a good thing for me because if, if I hadn't already been committed to another film, which was uh, a remake of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman with Daryl Hannah, mm -hmm. I probably would have never done a film again. It was such a traumatic tragedy. For anybody listening who doesn't know, Brandon Lee was tragically killed accidentally on the set of The Crow by a prop gun which hadn't been checked properly. Brandon had only three days of filming left, but following his death, the decision was made to complete the film through script rewrites, a stunt double and digital effects. The Crow is dedicated to Lee and his fiancée. The film was released on May 13th. So I got hired to be the costume designer for The People vs. Larry Flint, which was a huge break for me because I had worked on kind of genre-based films before that, Tank Girl, Tack the 50-Foot Woman, the Crow, and I really wanted to work on character-based films. And um, I heard about The People vs. Larry Flint, and I pursued it. I didn't have the resume or the <laughs> reputation to be able to have gotten that film, but I had a very fortuitous bunch of circumstances that allowed me to get hired. Um, and Milos Forman is one of the directors, if not the director, who I was first cognizant of um, and knew he was because of my parents taking me to art house films as a kid. Mm. That was exciting. And um, so I got hired to do that film, ostensibly to co-design it with one of Milos's best friends, who was a very accomplished costume designer, his generation, who had done Amadeus and Valmont. I was thrilled. I was really, really excited. And then the next thing I find out, Courtney Love is cast in it. And I thought, oh, shit. This is going to be the end of, like, I'm going to get fired off this movie because she'll know who I am from San Francisco and she'll know I'm not, you know, I just knew it was a big break for me to get that film. And I was just worried that I would be found out or something. I guess I felt like an imposter of some sort. So I'll never forget the first time she came for a fitting. I was quite nervous. I was afraid she'd remember me from like the punk rock days in San Francisco <laughs> when I was like 19, 18, 19. Yeah. And she arrived and she was 
she just struck me. First of all, physically so beautiful. She looked incredible. Courtney is one of the most hilarious, warm, incredibly funny people. You know, she embraced me. She's a very woman. She's a woman's woman. She's really aligns herself with other women. That was the beginning of, um, gosh, I mean, that is 25 years ago at this point, a long and very important seminal friendship in my life, uh, mm. which is incredible. So we, so we met then and, um, had an amazing time on that movie. And then after the movie, she was continuing with an album with Hole and she asked me to work with her as a stylist on that album, which I did. And towards the end of that time, she uh, had called me up and said, you know, I'm going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone with Tina Turner and Madonna. It's the women in rock issue. And this was in 97. So we already had been working together. I mean, not exclusively. I was doing other things at the same time, too. Um, but our friendship, I mean, we'd already been working together a couple years and she said, you know, I've recommended you to Madonna. And I said, well, why'd you do that? And Tina Turner has her own stylist. I, I'll, you know, Madonna can get her own stylist. I mean, I was, a, I, I admired Madonna very much. I had, of course, was aware of everything she ever did, but I never imagined that we would have anything in common or that I would be her style or even that she would be my style. Um, and I was quite happy admiring her and not having to work with her. I never imagined I would have that opportunity. And Courtney said, she's in between stylists and, you know, I've recommended you. And I, I kind of, you know, I discouraged her. I just said, you know, because I thought in my mind that it was Courtney's way of trying to get the best dress. Like I thought, <laughs> okay, so if I'm the stylist Tina has her stylist and then I'm Courtney and Madonna stylist. Of course, Courtney thinks I'm going to be loyal to her first. So that was me being um, paranoid, not giving Courtney enough credit. <laughs> and, um, and then next thing I knew, um, my agent called me that Madonna had booked me for the job. So I called Courtney and I said, I told, like, how did this happen? And turns out she had, Courtney herself had called my agent, got my portfolio, put a personal note in it, sent it to Madonna, and Madonna booked me. So I was furious with Courtney. And um, <laughs> and I called her up and said so. And she said, oh, stop thinking so below the line, which really made me laugh because basically what she was saying is like, reach higher. Like, you mm -hmm. can do this, you know? Yeah. There's this yeah. old-fashioned term in filmmaking, above the line and below the line. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like the cast system where above the line are – Actors, writers, directors, producers, everyone that makes residuals and below the line is everyone else from the costume mm. designer to the cinematographer to the caterer. So, right. which is an archaic term, but it made me laugh nonetheless. <laughs> She's very witty. And I kind of like that was it. I couldn't, I, I didn't have any witty repartee. I couldn't, I couldn't respond to that. So I swallowed it and I did the job. You know, lo and behold, it was a great day. It was a day I'll never forget. Madonna was just releasing her Ray of Light album. So this is in 97. And Madonna being Madonna, being very organized, and she hired me for her uh, next job, which I think was the cover of Q Magazine with uh, Rankin. And then the job after that was uh, the first music video for Ray of Light, which was Frozen, 
with Chris mm. Cunningham directing and Darius Kanji shooting it. And then it just went from there. Unfortunately mm. for Courtney, um, <laughs> it was, we, we were, we weren't able to work together as often because Courtney mm. wasn't as scheduled and as organized <laughs> as Madonna was, but we maintain friendship and I certainly, and to this day, she remains one of my closest friends. But that's how I met Madonna. It was the most unlikely, ridiculously hilarious story. Mm. And again, Frozen, I mean, how amazing was that video? That, <laughs> and was, her in the big, that was. I don't know what it was. Was it a big giant cloak or something? The big black cloak? I mean, I remember being obsessed with that video because Ray of Light is my favorite Madonna album ever. Is it? I it's just such a think, great yeah. record. It's such a. So great. It's such a positive record. It's such a reflection of this love affair she was having at the time with being a mom, a new mom. Just beautiful, beautiful time to have met her. She was going through quite a, a spiritual time as well with her Ashtanga yoga and her Kabbalah practice. And it was very inspiring being around her um, and, and intoxicating. You know, I really, and I know you'll understand this, Neil. I think. You know, the thing about these enduring uh, creative relationships in, you know, looking at why it's really about a similar communication style. Like I, Madonna and yeah. I have a sim similar sensibilities in general, a similar work mm -hmm. ethic and a similar communication style, which has afforded us to have this kind of um, seamless trajectory together. I mean, I don't take any of it for granted. I'm always thrilled when she calls me to work on a new project and very grateful for the opportunities. But it's always, and she's always had a really great infrastructure, which is a really important for me because I'm so, I'm practical minded as well. And like, as much as you can love one artist, unless there's an infrastructure that is there to support you, meaning everyone from the manager down to the assistant to the way that the you know, Madonna had had years of, you know, before I came along of, you know, being uh, at the center of our culture uh, mm. as an artist. So she, even then, was often the most experienced person on any set because she had mm. she's so pro prolific and had been successful for such a long time. So I really enjoyed that fluidity of working with her, of and I still enjoy it uh, just in terms of like her knowing what there's really no, no bullshit with her. Like she knows what she wants. She's also very collaborative. There's a system in place to move that forward, which is crucial for me because my work is also logistics. So yeah, it's been an incredible enduring relationship that um, the frozen video is unique because it really encapsulated so much for me at that time. Jean-Paul Gaultier is probably the most influential fashion designer on me in terms of inspiring, wanting to work in fashion. And, you know, for me, like if I think about the most influential moments in my life, I would say one of the most influential things for me um, and, and a reoccurring theme is like when I saw um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, yeah. That inspired me so much as a young person because that was about freedom and self-expression 
and, totally. and androgyny and sexual ambiguity and kind of that thing of don't dream it, be it, which is literally yeah. a lyric in the song, which is really speaking to the way I was raised. Don't dream it, be mm. it. Like make something of yourself, of your life, of your creativity. And that also that sexual ambiguity of male, female, gender conversations, sexual conversations. That was so provocative to me. I saw that when I was an adolescent and yeah. all those hormonal feelings and everything. And that really informed me, informed yeah. me in the same, me too. did it? Yeah. And the music and the story and everything. And that's so also in the same way, Jean-Paul Gaultier with his, gender bending and the way that he approached fashion really informed me as a young person when I was like making those little like mock-up photo shoots with my friends in Santa Cruz before I moved to New York and it was um he's one of the most important artists of our generation so <laughs> when Madonna asked me to come to New York to have discussion to have a meeting about, uh, because I met when we did the women in rock cover, we were in California in LA. And then at that time she had a home in LA. And then we did the Q cover with Rankin in LA. And then she went back to New York where she also had a place. And she said, you know, I was asked to come to New York to have a meeting with her and Jean-Paul Gaultier because she had seen Jean-Paul, I believe it was his first couture collection and that she, as uh, she sent me pictures uh, by FedEx, I think at that time, it was before, <laughs> before scanning on the computer. Um, uh, I think she sent me the, had the lookbook sent to me from that particular show. It was like a Frida Kahlo show. And mm -hmm. she was really inspired by it. And she wanted to know, she wanted to show me what she was thinking for the video. And would I come to New York to have a meeting with her and Jean-Paul Gaultier? I'm like, what? Are you kidding? With my agent, <laughs> my agent asked, I'm like, this is dream control. I'll never forget taking a cab. I was staying like downtown up. She was on the, at that time she was living on, I think it was 64th street. And I was taking a cab. I was up because I think of, of the weather or something. I was taking a cab to her house. Uh, for the meeting and I was like so nervous because uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier was going to be there as well. I was so nervous that I was literally having a panic attack and I've never had anything like that and I had the cab driver pull over about eight blocks, ten blocks before her house and I, and I just, I'll walk there. I literally couldn't get enough air in my, in my lungs and I'll never forget it was freezing, super cold and walking up Broadway to her house and looking and feeling, I kept seeing my reflection in the storefront windows as walking. And I literally was so nervous. The same feelings I had had, like when I moved to New York, when I went to Jade Hobson's office, um, when I went for an interview for the people versus Larry Flint, like the feeling of like, I can't pull this off or I'm going to yeah. be found out. When I went to Arthur Elgort's studio, I'm going to be found out that I was panicking. And I remember I was crying. I was so, it was probably also because it was really cold. And I was like talking to myself, like, pull it together. You can do this. Pull it together. <laughs> and, um, you know, I got to her house and, John Paul was there. He couldn't have been, I mean, this, he, 
I think, you know, meeting him was huge for me. And he couldn't, you know, I'm sure you've met him. He is the most gracious, warm, excitable, kind person. And he was so... See, I've, ne- I've never met him, actually. You haven't? No. But what's interesting is I interviewed Erin O'Connor and Jade Parfit for the podcast. And obviously they did so many shows with him. And they've just said exactly the same as you. They were like, he's the warmest kindest most generous person you could ever meet and excitable he's so much Mm. energy he's super enthusiastic and positive Mm. he's Mm. he yeah it's so true he's infectious and he was you know he didn't know me from anyone there's no way he could have ever even known known who i was and we're sitting there (laughs) there's madonna jean paul and i and Madonna, the record hadn't been released, and she's, she had us there to play us the music. So we're listening to the song, which was just bizarre. It was like an out-of-body experience to be sitting in her living room, listening to the song Frozen with her in the room, first of all, which is totally awkward. Like, you know, like, what are you supposed to do? Tap your feet, you know? It's it, like, to listen, I'd, I'd been in this situation before with artists where they play you their music when they're sitting there. And there's nothing more disarming because you feel so self-conscious. Like, I'm supposed to tap my foot or whatever. Um, but also like, it's that fear of, like, what if I don't like it? What if, like, how am I going to blag or fake that it's great if you don't like it? Is that going on in your head? For it? sure, you know? for sure. Mm. And then, you know, uh, Jean-Paul's there who's just, that's my own experience of meeting one of my heroes. Thank God the song was amazing. (laughs) And it was really exciting and really inspiring. And we're sitting there and we're looking at the pictures from the collection and Madonna's talking about, you know, we're going to shoot it in the desert. And she's talking about the concept and everything. And Chris Cunningham's work, who I knew a little bit because he had done the Aphex Twins video. And I I knew who Darius Mm. Kanji was, the cinematographer. He had shot that movie seven with David Fincher and a lot of really amazing films. So um, it was all very, very exciting. And then at one point her and John Paul were dialoguing and I was taking notes and then Madonna turned to me and she said, well, what are your ideas? What do you think? You know, cause she was, she had her eye on a couple of the looks from the lookbook. And I remember being kind of like, me? Like, what do I think? And me never being one to be a shrinking violet or not offer an opinion, like a bull in the china shop. I just started saying it would be really great if we had uh, exactly what you said, a cloak, if, you know, if we have wind, so it looks makes you look like a bird because she explained that there's going to be this special effects. And then Jean-Paul said, here, draw what you mean. And then I took, and then he had been drawing and then he gave me his drawing and a pen. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm supposed to draw for Jean-Paul Gaultier over his drawing? He's like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And he was so generous and so collaborative. And then kind of drew this this hood thing for this for the cloak over the dress, over his drawing. And he's like, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And it was like a really like a an improvisational collaborative session 
And I was just like, I mean, it wasn't just John Paul Gaultier and Madonna. It was the fact of them together. They had done so many iconic things together. And to be invited into that conversation so generously by both of them was, um, was really like incredible. It was, it was amazing. I worked with, uh, John Paul's team who, you know, made everything beautiful and they sent it to us and, and uh, that that was the video, but that was a, a really magical experience for me uh, to be invited to participate and also to bring something to the table. And, you know, that's the thing about Madonna that I think is so um, fantastic is that she has a point of view, but if she's inviting you to collaborate with her, she expects you to bring something to the table. And that is really like the best you can hope for from an artist, I think. Um, is that you can, you know, that you're able to literally mm. collaborate. Well, you ended up doing, um, was it six tours with her, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, which is like madness to think you've done that many. Because um, what do you say, it's nearly 20 years you've worked with her. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when I had met her, she hadn't toured in quite a long time. I mean, the first mm. tour... The first tour that uh, I designed for her, Drown World, in 2001, it had been eight years before that. That The tour before that was The Girly Show, which was actually eight years before, which was before my time. I came after The Girly Show. You know, there is nothing like putting a tour together with Madonna. I mean, it is the – it's a massive effort by – lots of people mm. and yeah. um, I yeah. really am so grateful for those experiences they were incredible they take everything out of you I mean they are I think I can imagine it's quite intense it's not just Madonna it's usually you know 20 to 30 other performers on stage the wonderful thing about working with Madonna is being able to use kind of my stylist as a, uh, my muscle as a fashion editor my muscle as a costume mm. designer um, I, I get to hunt and gather and create, uh, mm -hmm. with her. And the great thing about the tours is that it's usually there's a narrative thread that comes with the whole thing. We create a lot of video content for the screens mm -hmm. on the tour as well. So we're making films, videos, um, plus the rehearsal process, which is theater. Mm -hmm. So it's an amalgamation of everything I love the best. Because you know what's amazing, Ariane, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're the only person who actually does film, music, and fashion at the same time throughout their career. Because like you said earlier, most people tend to focus on one thing. And I can't think of any... I know you call yourself a costume designer, don't you? Um, now which is what I guess you're no more in film, isn't it, as a costume designer. But you stretch so beyond that, I think, because you – obviously, when you go into fashion, I guess a stylist, um, but then, like, with music, again, it's another thing. But I don't know any other person that actually crosses all those genres successfully and keep, does them all – you know, simultaneously. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's it's like the work of a mad person, I have to say. I mean, <laughs> I think when I met Madonna, I, I, I found out quite quickly that 
because of her status and and her work that quickly everything else that I would do would be eclipsed by her notoriety. And so I worked twice as hard. I had already had a career of fashion, music, and film. So I worked twice as hard when I was working with her uh, in the early days to keep my other work alive. So I would not, I was, I think, I think the thing, and I think we all, um, tell me, tell me if you're the same. I think we're all worried about becoming redundant and, you know, it's that it's, you know, especially in fashion, when you're constantly thinking what's next, what's ahead, what will keep Mm. me relevant, what'll keep me engaged, what'll keep me interested. Mm. It's not just perception, but it's also about, like, I never wanted to become too dependent on one genre where I would get mm. lazy or phone it in. So I've always yeah. really just tried to say yes to opportunities that kept me engaged and learning mm. new things. I, I think the same can be said about you with your, with all your development from this podcast to the pro tools to everything mm. that you do. It's like, how can, as creative people, how can we keep growing? Right. So that has really been the overall um, theme for me. And then being able, as even if you're scared as hell, to just take new challenges and opportunities. And I would say that that gift came from, like, my childhood of always being the new kid. And, um, and, you know, not as a negative, but I think I'm motivated when I'm, kind of in fear, <laughs> like, you know, going, like yeah. saying yes to something like the people versus Larry Flint working with a world-class director or saying yes to, you know, a video with Madonna Jean-Paul Gaultier. Even though I often felt not worthy, I just took the opportunity and the challenge to make my work better. I've had some very um, lucky circumstances for sure, but I've also tried to navigate a career that's kept me engaged because I don't really know what else I would do, you know? So <laughs> it's like with having... Well, I'm a bit like that. I'm a bit like that. I feel like, you know, a lot of people have said to me, oh, Neil, you're always, you know, diverting into other things. And I said, well, I guess I get a bit bored as well. I don't know about you. I kind of, I don't like to just stick to one thing for too long, even though I am a hairstylist. That is my job. But I like to just, my brain kind of goes... I want to see if I can do that. And I think, like you say, the fear of not knowing whether it's going to be any good or not is what actually drives me to want to do it more. And I think you're the same for sure, aren't you? Where the fear is actually the, is what gives you that drive to go, fuck it, let's try it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And Um, I think that's the only way that we grow. Thanks for listening. And remember to go and listen to part two of Ariane's story. Remember to subscribe to be notified of any up-and-coming episodes. Series 1 and 2 of In Bed with Neil Moody are also available on all podcast platforms. Listener.